I want you to open your Bibles to the 15th chapter of the book of John. And as we turn there, we will notice that we are not in the Gospel of Mark, if you are with us regularly. They're different people. And while we look at John chapter 15, we are entering into a three-week series called Befriend, as we evaluate what the Bible says to us about the friend that God is to us, who He has chosen to be. We've chosen to work with a verb because, in all honesty, God is actively pursuing us. God is passionately pursuing people. God is consistently calling people to Himself. And for this series, we're going to use John, the writer of large portions of the New Testament, to show us about friendship. We're looking at that from three different angles. This week we will look at what he says to us in the most uh, visible thing that we find John write in the New Testament, the Gospel of John. We'll also look at the book of Revelation, if you are looking forward to talks about dragons and such. We will also look at what he says to us in 1 John from the perspective of a grandfather. We will notice that John has things to say to us, and he's a great person for us to look at in regard to friendship because John has declared to us how he sees himself in light of Jesus. Because he keeps referring to himself in a certain way. He calls himself the one that Jesus loved. I'm not sure if it's like this at your house, but more than likely there is the occasional debate if you have any number of children whatsoever as to who the parent's favorite is. And they all have reasons that they believe that they are the favorite. And honestly, their reasons have nothing to do with the fact that they believe they are the favorite. They just believe that someone else is. They believe that the youngest is the favorite if they're not the youngest. They believe that the oldest is the favorite if they're not the oldest. They believe that the little girl is the favorite if they are one of the three boys. They believe that they are that there is one who is cared for in a different way. When we look into John's gospel, he refers to himself in a very unique way in the teachings of Scripture because he calls himself regularly the one who Jesus loved. And if we're going to understand what it means for us to see the active friendship of Jesus toward us, it is great for us to approach this from the perspective of the one who says, I'm the one that Jesus loved. He was okay with the rest of them. He was really, he was my friend. He loved me the most. And if we look into John's gospel in chapter 15, I want to catch you up as to where we are. If you are unfamiliar with the church calendar, this is Palm Sunday. And as we look at Palm Sunday, it's the day where Jesus comes in to Jerusalem triumphally. That's why it's called the triumphant entry. And as he comes in, he is approaching and everyone is responding to Jesus in a very different way than the disciples have been set up to expect. Because for the entirety of the ministry of Jesus, the Pharisees have bashed him. They've had things to say about him. Yet here Jesus comes in and the common people, they adore him. John chapter 12, just listen to me as I read about his triumphal entry. And then we will see how we move from that point to another one rather quickly. John chapter 12, uh, 12, verse 12. The next day when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem... They took palm branches and went out to meet him, and they kept shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel, calling to Old Testament teachings. 
Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it. Just as it was written, do not be afraid. Daughter Zion, look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that he, these things had been written about him and they had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowds which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they continued to testify. Did you see what he did? He raised a man from the dead. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. And then the Pharisees, the Pharisees who have been doing everything they can to depower Jesus, they look at one another and they say, Do you see? We've accomplished nothing. The world is going after him. Two days later, we're in a different scenario altogether. Because we will notice that the disciples are in a place where everyone is beginning to turn on them. We are moments away from Jesus Christ being crucified. We are moments away from a garden. We are in the unique perspective of seeing someone who will sit down and they will eat what's called the Last Supper with Jesus. And as we are looking at this Last Supper concept, we see that Jesus is going to deal with the disciples and he's going to show them what love looks like actively. Whenever we think about the meetings that Jesus would have with the disciples, we have to be very careful not to land in this place where we believe that as he taught them, they just sat there perfectly. As if everything was calm and everything was pristine. When we get into the midpoint of the week from the triumphal entry almost to the point of the crucifixion of Jesus, everything has gotten really, really tense. The disciples are troubled. They are unsure as to who this betrayer among them happens to be. They are tired and they are also in a hurry simultaneously. They're not going to get what they want from the Messiah and he keeps reminding them of that. He keeps talking about dying. They feel as if their time following Jesus may have all been wasted and he's teaching a group of men that based upon the entire, the stress of their situation that these men as Jesus meets with them, they're about to snap one another in half. And in John chapter 15 as they are dealing with their emotions with one another, their tensions with one another, who will betray us? Who will mistreat us? Who, what's going to happen when he dies? Are we going to be killed too? In John chapter 15 picking up in verse 12, this is what Jesus says to the disciples in the midst of that moment. This is my command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you. No one has greater that love than this than to lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command you. I don't call you servants anymore because I, I, a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends because I've made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask in the Father, ask the Father in my name, He will give you. This is what I command you are to love one another. More than likely, you were given rules as a kid. Maybe rules as an adult. Maybe there are rules at these various chemical plants that I am unaware of because you guys operate as if you're the Illuminati and you don't tell people things. 
Maybe you had rules when you were at your home as a child, things that you could let people know, things that you couldn't let people know. Maybe your mom and dad gave you really good rules, things like if you are to eat lunch, you can't go swimming for how long? 30 minutes. I don't know why it's 30 minutes, but it's 30 minutes. We had other rules that we're, we should honor our father and mother. That's straight from the Bible and everyone's subjective and how they interpret that. We have this idea of being people who are given rules. And Jesus says, here's my command for you. If I want you to know anything from me, I want you to love one another. Well, how? He says love one another five times in this passage along, this short group of verses. Love one another. Love one another. Love me as I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. So if I'm going to understand what it means to love in a way that aligns with the love of Jesus, I have to evaluate in my own heart and in my own behavior, am I loving in that way? And to get there, I have to ask this question. Well, how did Jesus love? And when we look at the love of Jesus, we see that He loved sacrificially to the point of death. We see that He loved selflessly. We see that he loved intentionally. We see that he loved consistently. We see that he loved patiently. Just as I have loved you, love one another. He loved you and he loved me when we were unlovely. He loved us when we were objects of wrath. He loved us when we were far away from him. And Jesus is calling those who are standing there in his midst at one another's throats. This is what it looks like to follow me. This is what it looks like to be my disciple. To love one another. He then gets to this place. No one has greater love than this. To, than to lay his life down for his friends. To explain the work of Jesus toward us. And what should shape the way that we treat and interact with one another. Jesus says we are to lay down our lives. Paul will take this idea of laying down your life to explain how the husband is to love his spouse. Love one another. This is not the emotional garbage type of love. This is not the understanding of love that I had as a 17-year-old when a girl broke up with me even though she did not know we were dating type of love. This is not the type of love that causes a lovesick teenager to not be able to eat and not be able to sleep and to be miserable to be around. This is love that is invasive. That's how Jesus says that we are to love. Loving in a way that transforms. The disciples of Jesus, this is how he says you are to love, that extends to us. We are to be known by how we love. One theologian says this, The eternal divine love reaches complete and unsurpassable expression in the death of Jesus, which at the same time the death of a man, which at the same time was the death of a man for his friends. Jesus says, if you're going to be in me and you're going to be in relationship with me, then love is the way that you are to demonstrate yourself as a follower of me in this society. The people of God are to love. What are the things that we're known for? 
Are we known as people who are loving? Are we known as that personally? Are we known as that corporately? Are we known as that when we go public with our faith? Are we people who are known for the good news of Jesus being something that is available to anyone who would trust Him? Are we known as people who have a love for each other which meets those of us who are in our time of need? Are we people who are known for our love for the, for, uh, the poor and orphans and widows? Rightly or wrongly, more often than not, when those who are outside of the Christian faith see us, they don't know us as people who are loving, they know us for what we hate. They know us for what we stand against. They know us for what we disagree about. They know us for being contrary. They know us for being misunderstanding. They, they know us for all of the things that are not leading with love. They know us to be pawns of political parties, whichever political party you may affiliate with. There's a chance that you, if you're a Christian, have been known for that. We are known for this. Who wants to be known for what they hate? Have you ever thought through what that feels like? Ladies, if we're to ask you, tell me about your husband. And you started with all the things that you don't like about him. That's horrific. You know, he snores. He's a terrible driver. Terrible driver. He doesn't know how to fix anything. I'm just explaining myself. We should not be known for these things. The love that God has called us to as people who follow Him are things where we are to be His representation. Because love is our greatest apologetic. We can tell people what we believe, but if at the heart of that, this crucified and resurrected Savior is not present, if in the presentation of that, this crucified and resurrected Savior is not declared, then how is our life, how is my life, and how are your lives unique? The people of God are to be people who lay down their lives for others. No one has greater love than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus will go on to explain more and more about what it means to be his friend. Verse 14, you are my friends... If you do what I command you, you're aligned with me. You belong to me if you obey me. One of the places where many of our friendships reside, and I'm going to use air quotes when I say that, is on this social media platform that's known for recipes and argumentation called Facebook. And I've been there for a long time and I've had various people that I've interacted with over the years who would at some point make a profession of faith or claim to know Jesus or be aligned with Jesus. Yet when you look at the way that their life may be moving now, it, though they claimed at one point to have a trust and faith and belief in Jesus that may not be present now. It's the idea of consistently being people who are aligning with who Christ happens to be. And I think that that is just as present in places like this where we gather together every Sunday. Do we really seek to follow after Jesus? And does that affect the way that we see everything? 
Is it affecting the way that we treat everyone? Is it impacting the way that we see one another? You are my friends if you do what I command you. The word that Jesus uses here is one that we know. Because you and I can think of who our faithful friends are. The ones that matter the most to us. The ones that we care the most about. The ones who are invested in us and we are invested in them. And that idea of friendship is tied to Old Testament teaching. Jesus uses this word to talk about his disciples. The same word that God used when he talked about Abraham and of God. The same idea that was alluded to with, with Moses, that he would be a friend of God. Why? Because confidence has been extended to a friend. And we read through this text, and very much like Abraham, Moses, and disciples, God has brought us into his sacrificial love to send us out with this sacrificial love. One theologian says, It is impossible to separate works from faith, as impossible as to separate heat and light from fire. When we live in a world which you happen to live in, and I happen to live in, are we declaring that Jesus Christ is our hope and that His love for us, sacrificed in our place, is something that we are willing to do for those who are united with us in faith and those who would like to see united with us in faith. We're called to love people. We love willingly because Jesus loved willingly. He says in verse 15, I don't call you servants anymore. And God can use any type of language whatsoever to describe his relationship with us. He actually does throughout the scriptures. There's a place where Jacob says, God, I am but a worm before you. And God agrees with him. Just get up, you worm. That's what he says. There's another place where we're called slaves, bond servants to God. We're called servants. Jesus references that here. You're not simply servants anymore. Because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. You don't understand. But now, Jesus is saying, if you're in a relationship with me through what I'm going to do, you understand what this is. And the claim that we make as people who follow after Jesus in 2022 is that we understand the hope of the world and that that is and will always be Jesus. That's our hope. Not that we can get people to agree with us on every jot and tittle. Not that we can get people to align with us on every argument point, argue, argued point that we make. But that we believe that Jesus and Jesus alone is our hope. God extends confidence to Abraham and Moses and the disciples and he's extended that to us. Are you serving me? I've made known everything to you. Every single thing I've heard from my Father. God's called us to love intentionally. Why? Because He chose us. Now that, that word has huge ramifications when we use it. And I know that some of us may be a little bit afraid of the idea that God would choose us. That simply means that God chose you. On top of that, clarified, on top of that, this idea of God choosing us, it's tied to the idea of rabbinic teaching. You would choose who you followed after. Jesus said, I've inverted that. I chose you. Coincidingly, when you look at the disciples, there's not a whole lot worth choosing. 
we are getting close to the NFL draft. If the disciples were wide receivers, the report on them would be that they did not have any hands and they could not run. It's a terrible group of people to choose from. Yet Jesus says, I chose you. I've invited you in. I've empowered you. I've made possible for you to be what God would have you to be. That's what his love does for us. And everything inside of us, all of the natural inclinations that we have to fight and fuss and push and argue and, and attempt to undo the condemning of the world by our, with our own power, Jesus says, you don't get to do that. I'm the one who undoes this. I undo death. I undo hell. I undo all the, the curse of sin. Jesus has this deep love for his disciples. He called them to love intentionally. I, I pointed you, what's he want, what does he mean when he says love intentionally? When I say love intentionally. He says to them, I appoint you to go and to produce fruit, and that your fruit should remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He will give you. By producing fruit, what is He asking? There's a bit of a bleed in churches at times. There's a corporate approach to church that you'll see present here, there, everywhere. I don't know how we can really escape it. We attempt to. But it is what it is. We have our job, we work wherever, and we meet together. And at our job, wherever your job happens to be, there is a vision that's been given to your job. And if we've had lunch together, and there's a possibility that we've had lunch together, you may have asked me, or you might have asked Jerry, well, what's the vision of the church? And we hopefully, kindly and politely reply, well, I don't get to have a vision. Jesus has already given us one. Jesus has given us a vision for what this church should be. Well, what should a church be, any church be? Well, we should be people who, who love God because of the work of Jesus. That we love our brothers and sisters, that we love lost people, and that we make and grow disciples. All that swimming together in this pool. Love God, love Jesus, love your brothers and sisters, and love lost people. Make and grow disciples. If you're present and you've never trusted Jesus, I just want you to know, I want you to know Him we don't come together every Sunday and organize worship services and make sure that microphones work and put in new floors. We don't do these things because we just like to have a place to gather on Sunday mornings. We, we do believe that God has called us to interact with our lost brothers, our lost neighbors, and hope that they will come to know Jesus. If you're a believer and you've never taking a next step, whatever that next step happens to be, I want you to take that. If you're here and you, yes, I have a relationship with Jesus, but I've got things in my life I need to deal with, I would encourage you to take the next step. If you've never been baptized, we want you to be baptized. We have a Sunday in just a couple of weeks where we're going to have baptisms and celebrate with those who have placed their faith in Jesus what God has done. And if that's a question that you, that you have a question about that, please let me or Jared know. We want you to be involved in what God is doing here. At our church in Chattanooga, there was a turnover. Whenever there's a turnover at church, it's really weird because there's a power grab. And there's, there's no longer a pastor. There are no longer people in leadership. So, so everyone who's ever been the boss at their work, they decide they'll be the boss of the church. And you've got like 74 bosses all at once, and it's neat. 
And everyone has opinions because they've been given opinions and their opinions are weighty wherever they happen to be. And in the midst of this, there were people who would leave the church because while the, the power grabbers were, were grabbing after power, they were just, just, others were just disgruntled. And one man in particular left our church. And when he was asked why he leave, left the church, because you should always ask why people, people why they leave the church, even if it hurts your feelings, he said, well, you people talk about loving each other too much. See you in heaven, I hope. Uh, <laughs> when we look at the idea of being people aligned with the message of Jesus... We cannot abandon love. If we abandon love, we've abandoned the gospel. Al Mohler says this, the absence of love is the absence of the gospel. If that's gone, you can have your stuff right. You're wrong. You're wrong. You and I are loved in order to love Loving intentionally means that you don't necessarily just love academically. Far too often we, we believe for whatever reason that if we do our thorough research and we've got the right material and we've listened to the right people, whoever we've decided the right people are, yet we miss this distinct authority uh, of the founder of our faith's voice. Well, you know, I know the stuff and then Jesus says, but what about caring for people? If that's gone, we missed it. We missed it. And we think through our coworkers and the people who drive us crazy. And I'm assuming people drive you crazy because people drive me crazy. Are we sacrificially loving in those places? Are we loving in ways that, that happen to be incarnational? Why would we want to love that? What does that mean? That means that we meet people where they are because Jesus met us where we happen to be. Are we loving in ways that are sacrificial? Our faith is tied to a sacrifice. Jesus on his way to a cross to us, for us to think that we can avoid sacrifice. It's for us to miss a huge portion of what it means to be the people of Jesus. If we are loveless in the way that we love, we really need to reevaluate our hearts. How do I do this? What, what do I do? How, how am I supposed to align my life with the message of Jesus? That I would love others. That I would love my brothers and my sisters. That I would love my neighbor in the hopes that God would do something supernatural so that they would be my brother and sister. As we approach life, I would encourage us to always center ourselves in the truth of who Jesus happens to be. Because he is the source of love for us. He is the hope of God for us. He is the crucified Savior in our place. We should rejoice in the reality of that. We should depend on it as we go through the difficulties of everyday life. We should really work hard to, to do nothing to grieve that. Meaning that we don't live in a way that contradicts or is contrary to who God would have us to be and why God would have us to be that. 
We should delight in the idea that Jesus would offer to die in the place of sinners. When we have conversations about really deep theological concepts like hell, there should be no glee in our voice that someone would spend eternity separated from God. Our hearts should be in the place where we're hoping and praying and begging people to trust in Jesus. The word for chose means that he sets us apart. It, it has the exact same root as the idea of laying your life down. In order for God to choose us, he lay his life down for us to enact our salvation, to make us his. Jesus dies in our place. Verse 17, Jesus says, This is what I command you. you don't miss this. Love one another. Well, who? Galatians is helpful to us when we consider the idea of the church because it gives us direction as to the idea that the church should love one another. Believers should care for the, for the situations and the scenarios of other believers. And our church, really, I'll just encourage you, we do a really good job of that. If I can pat you on the back or brag on you or whatever, we really do a good job of caring for our faith family. This micro church that meets at 1027 Dixie behind AutoZone and Whataburger and multiple other caloric entities. It also means that we have a love for our neighbors in hopes that God will do something that transforms them. But Chad, you don't know my neighbor. My neighbor is a moron. There's a chance your neighbor thinks you're a moron. And if we have a disgruntled, disagreeable spirit every time they happen to interact with us, that's not good neighbor love. Jesus says this, he threads it over and over, saying this phrase, love one another, love one another, love one another, because the disciples need to hear it. There's a possibility that we need to hear it too. Love one another, love one another, because he knows we're not going to want to. He knows we don't want to love each other all the time. He knows that we're going to forget it. So it's on repeat. It's this consistent thread. It's not just here. John's going to write First John. He's going to talk about love a whole lot. It's the slow process of working this idea into the hearts of people who naturally would abandon it. But our hope is that something supernatural has taken place that is present. I opened my dresser the other day because I had to get rid of some things. I knew that I was supposed to get rid of some things because there were other things that other people were getting rid of and I have to add to that. And I noticed a, a pair of shorts in my drawer and, and it was athletic shorts. And I was reminded in a way of, of my grandmother because these athletic shorts, maybe you've been there, whoever, where the string is pulled out of one side is that just me, or have you ever looked at your show like, oh man, the string, uh, it's just one side. So I would always throw those away, or get rid of them. My grandmother, she would say, just bring those to me, and I would watch as she would slowly 
meticulously work the thread in the waistband of the short around until it was the way that it was supposed to be. When we look at this text, and then Jesus is talking to us about loving one another, loving one another, loving one another, he's threading this idea for us as to how this is the way that things should be. And we're going to want to abandon it. We're going to want to forsake it. We're going to want to give ourselves every reason as to why we should not do that. But Jesus will consistently meet us with this language of sacrificial love and obeying his commands because that's what he's called us to be as his people, restoring what should be there. The phrase just as should overwhelm us when we read through this text. Just as I have loved you, love one another. That means that we're laying our lives down. That means that we are allowing things that we don't like to... We're having conversations about those that are molded by God-honoring love. There's this guy named Augustine. There's a city in Florida named after him. And he was asked about the love of God. And he compared it to water. He said, I can see the depths. I just can't reach the bottom. Church family, I would implore us as we consider what it means to be God's people in this community... Are we loving in a way that says to lost people who are far from God that the love of God is something they can... That it's just It's so immense that they'll never really understand it. Or have we given every barrier, every boundary? Have we allowed every dis, disagreement to cut them off from having conversations about the idea that Jesus lays down his life so that we can know who God is. I can see the depths. I just can't reach the bottom. The death of Jesus is our hope. It is God saying to us, I want you to know me and to trust me and to walk with me. I pray that as we are in this unique couple of weeks where people are going to show up at church where people may be more apt to have conversations about hope and death and resurrection. That we will lead with love that honors God and says that Jesus is, is all of those things. He's our hope. He's our sacrifice. He's our new life. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, we thank you for today. Just nobody's looking around. I will say this. If you're here and you've never placed your faith in Christ. You and I, we will not figure things out on our own. Jesus will meet us. Jesus will, his word will invade the places in us that are far from Him. 
if you've never placed your trust in Jesus, Jesus has laid his life down for you. He has invited you to know him. He is saying to you that his death on the cross, where this whole passage is moving, can be the death of your sin. He is saying to you that his resurrection, which is what we will celebrate next Sunday, can be your life. So if that's something that you want to talk about, if that's something that you want to think through, that you want to celebrate, that you want to to follow up about, I'm in the back right-hand corner of the room. And Jesus invites you to him. To shift from someone who exists to someone who is his friend. He's laid his life down so that we could be in relationship with him. Father, we thank you for this morning. And I pray that your word uh, will work in ways that I don't really expect. Like that I could never imagine. Because the depths of your love are, are so deep. Father, I pray that you will save people who are lost. Lord, I pray that you will not only save people who are lost that gather here, but Lord, you will use the people who are meet in this room every week as they scatter to call men and women to yourself. That you would use our faith family to lead with love. So would you declare to our community that you're the hope of the world through the sacrificial love of the people who meet here and in other good news-centered churches around our community. We ask this in your name, Jesus. If you need me, I'm in the back right-hand corner of the room.